Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Eric Newman. Hi, Kate. Nice to be with you. You as well, Eric. And this week we have a double header. First, we're going to listen to an interview that I did with LARB contributor Tom Kamita about their first novel, The Nature Book which is a literary supercut that collects and collages all these descriptions of the natural world from over 300 other novels. And then we'll listen to an interview that the two of us did with Suzanne Becker about her book, Inside the Spiral, The Passions of Robert Smithson, which is the first biography to be published of the great American artist, land artist, Robert Smithson. Yeah, what's kind of cool about this double header is that we're giving listeners a way into land or landscape art in two ways, right? Tom's book explores that in a really interesting way, as you said, through a literary supercut. And then we get to think a little bit differently about that with the interview with Suzanne Betger, which, you know, to be perfectly honest, all I knew about Robert Smithson was the spiral jetty. I think that's probably true of most people. But getting to dive into all of the religious influences in his art, the way that sexuality creeps into his art, and kind of seeing how his art is reflective of a life that I think most of us kind of didn't know because there wasn't really a biography of him before was really exciting. I love that Smithson is someone who was not necessarily a romantic and didn't Mm -hmm. interact with the environment through kind of a more romantic gaze, but yet found so much in the natural world. The work that I knew of his Mm -hmm. alongside the spiral jetty was these pores, these pores Mm -hmm. where he'd like pour this weird bright orange plastic. I don't even know what it was down these kind of like embankments maybe around New Jersey and video I've seen you know I've seen films of those so yeah something about his relationship to the landscape I find you know pretty unique and compelling and I think that in a similar way with Tom's book it's not it's not just a celebration a romantic celebration or a projection it's also questioning um, could the landscape exist without the observer you know, which there is no observer in, in Tom's book exactly as a character, but yet how could we be getting all these descriptions without a human at the center of them? Yeah, absolutely. And just picking up on what you're saying too, the way that entropy as a formal concern crosses the work of both of these, you know, of, of the writer and, and the landscape artist you know, in terms of like putting together what seem to be random passages to make a whole or pouring things down the side of a a mountain or hill to just kind of see what, how art takes shape on the land. Yeah, very experimental. We should also say that Tom um, is a close relation of Medea, our co-host. Yes. Full disclosure. <laughs> as, as partner and co-parent of their child. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, in addition to being a LARB contributor, they are a major contributor in Medea's life. Absolutely. All right. Let's get to that interview. Great. 
I'm so happy to be speaking with the writer and artist Tom Committed today. Their books include The Circle Book, Airport Novella, Scent, and First Thought, Worst Thought, collected books 2011 through 2014, a print and digital archive of 40 books they produced in four years. Their fiction and essays are forthcoming or have appeared in Wire, Lit Hub, Electric, Literature, The Kenyan Review, Bomb, Joyland, Best American Experimental Writing 2020, and right here on the Los Angeles Review of Books. Kamita has staged numerous operas and performances at venues including the Berkeley Art Museum and Minneapolis's Momentum Dance Festival, and a solo exhibition of their work took place at the Royal Nonsuch Gallery in Oakland in 2015. They join me to speak about their novel, The Nature Book, a literary supercut that collects and collages descriptions of the natural world from 300 works of fiction by authors spanning Charles Dickens and Emily Bronte to Toni Morrison and William Gibson. The Nature Book is a narrative encompassing the changing of the seasons and the sweeping movement from island to jungles and grasslands to outer space, while also serving as an archive of the way nature has appeared in novels since the form was invented to the present day. It depicts a world without people as protagonists, sending us back in time as well as forward to a possibly post-human future, sublimely shifting our perception of what is normally background into the fore. Thanks so much for being here, Tom. Thank you for having me. So tell me a little bit about the idea that spawned the nature book, how the book came to you and how you decided to organize it the way it's organized. Back in 2012, I identified as a poet then. And I was the kind of poet that would write something new for each reading. And a friend of mine, the artist Koda Izawa, asked me to give a reading at an artist talk of his at the San Francisco Center for the Book. And he had just made this video called City of Nature. And I saw this video and I immediately thought, well, what if I tried something similar? Because in his, his video, he takes nature shots from like feature-length movies like the rivers of Fitzcarraldo and the rivers of Deliverance and the rivers of Rambo that flow into like the sea of swept away. And it was this really smooth kind of cut that he then rotoscoped in his like signature style where he like flattens these images. And most of his work had been previously like about depictions of violence in American culture. And so this work was so radically different, but like, of course, still in his style made me wonder, is this pointing to something some of the problems of like framing and flattening the world into images. So that was really intriguing to me. And being a writer, I thought, well, what if I tried something with novels? I, and I like went to the San Francisco public library and just like spent a day, just like photocopying passages and then collaged it into like a short text. And then soon after it was like, Oh God, it can't be a short text. It has to take the form of the thing I'm drawing from. It has to be a novel itself. And So that was 11 years ago. And it took me like four years to figure out how to find the right rhythm. And then since 2016, I've been basically only focusing on this. And uh, yeah, I just kind of taught myself this method of just kind of grouping elements into patterns, like, you know, looking at a bunch of winter language together. And then inside the winter language, you know, there are certain animals. And if you kind of group them together enough, a narrative can start to form and then you know, start connecting those animals and those seasons with other seasons and somehow a narrative, a whole novel came out of it. So that is how the book is kind of arranged. I mean, the first 
part takes us, the first, you know, chunk takes us from summer to winter to spring, you know, to summer again. So that's the movement across time. And then later you're focusing more on different locations. Uh, Yeah. And so that's how you put them all together just by finding descriptions and kind of organizing by what was being written about. Yeah. So I spent a year going through novels, like skimming them and some I read, but when you're doing this kind of work, it's hard to be immersed and also be collecting. I might've like read a book before or after, but for this kind of collection process, I mostly would skim or use control F to find like, where, where are these descriptions? After a year, I had like 1500 pages of descriptions. And like that, I happened to like that end of that year coincided with this residency where I had like more table space than I ever had. So at the Bemis center in Omaha. So I just printed it out and I realized, okay, well here are like four seasons. So here's a table of like summer, winter, spring, autumn, four different tables. And I was like, okay, well here's a bunch of jungle language. Here's desert language, prairies, outer space. And so they were just separate tables that I would then work with. And yeah, so that structure was just kind of there from the beginning because it was just in trying to group similarities. Those were these kind of like macro patterns or environments that kind of pretty easily structured the book. Okay, I was going to ask, yeah, of course, did you really read all these books? But in as much as that you saw how nature was appearing or how these descriptions were appearing, was there a general kind of placement of how the descriptions that you extracted were being used? I mean, I'm, I'm assuming it varied quite a bit, but was there, you know, did it really follow a mostly kind of background, foreground pattern in, in all the novels or were there any where it was a little bit more slanted than that? Yeah, I mean, it was mostly background or like nature descriptions usually show up at the beginning of a chapter or the end of a chapter or beginning or ending of a book. Or, you know, one of my favorite examples is like when like a fist, like somebody, there's a fight that happens and when the fist hits whatever it's going for, a lightning strikes or something, you know, (laughs) Um, you know, it's a pretty common, we kind of use nature usually to really like heighten and amplify the human drama that's going on. So, yeah, I mean, but there are some texts that did foreground animals a bit more, but I really feel like throughout, they were always connected to some other human thing. One exception, there's this book I found called Autobiography of an Electron. And there are these descriptions when you get, when we get closer to outer space, there's these descriptions of like that level, like the quantum level or whatever. And those are from this novel, hybrid novel science texts that are like a narrative about the life of an electron. But, you know, books like Life of Pi, that main character is like immersed in the natural world and, you know, Moby Dick, you know, these books, but still there's, you know, the biggest pattern I found is that when we talk about nature, more often than not, we're talking about people, even indirectly. And of course it's always connected to a human perspective, like the language itself, like the perspective that is like beholding and these things. So it's complicated. (laughs) Well, that seemed to me kind of something that's, inescapable here that even this book that is having nature completely in the fore, there's no human drama. You can't help but have the observer having been a human or have human perspective because otherwise how would we have this, you know, record 
So how did you think about that as you were putting this book together? Yeah, to be honest, I actually didn't think about it. There's something about having this kind of mass, like algorithmic network of what I'm juggling. And I had some literary constraints that it kind of distracts me from that. And so in a way, like, yeah, even for me, there's this hanging question of like, who is this voice? And of course, literally it is, you know, a multi, a polyvocal like chorus. But as you, of course, as you've as you read, like it feels kind of pretty solidified or unless like when Finnegan's weight comes in, <laughs> you know, you could like, it's like pretty clearly different. But I mean, I have some thoughts about who that voice is, but I wouldn't want to like confine it for anybody else's reading, I think. Well, I'm curious. I mean, I'm curious if you imagined that there was, I mean, so you're not really thinking in these terms possibly, but was there a narrator of this book for you? Did you imagine that or you kind of were trying to work past that or obliterate that? The whole book is just this tension between the natural and the human world. And I mean, okay. I'm going to say this as like a, also a reader of the text, because in a lot of ways I collaged it, but I'm also a reader of it. And, you know, it's all none of my words, but yeah, sometimes I'm like, is this some, like, when does this story take place? You know, is this thousands of years in the future after all traces of humans are gone and there's this being that is beholding? That's not my primary reading of it, but I have, there is that question, like, when is this taking place? Because there are references to like Disney but then there's also, then it also feels like it's based in the past sometimes. I think it's pretty unfixed in my mind. The thing that I, apart from like the voice that I find interesting after having like read it and like edited it so much is that I often think about it, if we are thinking about it, that it's set in the future, that human references are like polluted throughout the entire text. You know, that there's just no way to separate this natural world from like the elbow of the sun coming over the horizon or some anthropomorphized animal and these kinds of things. Yeah. I mean, and it's also taking place in English. I mean, there are certain inescapable human traces, you know, just in the words alone. But that was something I read in your afterward that you were saying that you were trying to excise as much reference to any man-made object as possible. So maybe talk about that aspect of the construction. That was mostly in an earlier version. Like before, when I mentioned I got really started in 2016, like I really kicked it off in 2016, there was an earlier draft where like a bit of a fool, I I mean, or I knew that there was, it was impossible, but there was this interest in creating a totally, a text that was completely unidentifiable, that even like the word bank, like a river bank, I wouldn't put in because maybe some reader could see like the financial institution and it was an experiment. But of course it failed because as we talked about, like the languages, this is like human technology, (laughs) but also it made a text that was, I thought pretty boring because once I really got into it and I really started to like study novels more because like I said, I was a poet and at that time I read more poetry, but you know, in the past 10 years, I've, I've now, I don't know, read hundreds of novels, but like I said, you know, it's just that if I were to do that for an entire book, I would be leaving out what makes these this language interesting, which is that it has this tension in that between the human and the natural, and of course challenges that binary. In terms of narrative or having things happen in the book, that seems to me like that would have been another challenge. You know, and so I can see that whether 
you know, in the beginning, these kind of like weather, the storms coming, the wind, like these are things that happen, but without weather, it's like weather is action in nature, kind of like the narrative of nature, but it's kind of like, what else is there? So was that something that you, that was challenging to try to have movement? I mean, how did you deal with that? Well, I should say early drafts were not good. <laughs> like <laughs> We're not good at that because like I mentioned, you know, I was just trying to kind of line things up and just have things connect. And like when you talk about a storm, yeah, the narrative is pretty relatively easy there because, you know, here's like the beginning of storm language. Things aren't so bad. Here's middle of storm language. It's getting pretty bad. (laughs) Here's like (laughs) climax of storm language. It is pandemonium. (laughs) And then like the storm trickles off and then there's maybe that was just kind of lining things up. But yeah, like. I wanted to write a book that people could read and get some pleasure from. And I almost thought I was not going to say this publicly, but because like pure fiction writers or whatever might be like, how could you do that? But one friend recommended fiction for dummies to me in like 2018. And I read that and it was actually incredibly helpful in thinking about narrative structure and like how a chapter works and, and even like watching like reality television and how much, how important transitions are and like cliffhangers. So that helped me figure out like there are a lot of cliffhangers at the end of each chapter. And I knew that making the text, the chapter shorter would be interesting. And so basically it was like applying these kind of pretty normy ideas to a text that is not that like literally trying to add like genre fiction ideas also. And I think that that made the book more readable. Yeah, I I thought it was very readable, actually. Engaging. Yeah. And I mean, and also you're choosing because you've chosen from some really great writers. You're also choosing very beautiful sentences. Maybe talk a little bit about the books that you selected from, what you ended up using as your source material. That also was kind of like a process of discovery and editing. Like I mentioned that I at first had this 1500 pages and at that point they were mostly after that first year of collecting, they were mostly more canonical texts. I was just like looking at a lot of like lists on the internet. Of course, when I did that, the scope was pretty small. Like most canonical texts are based in like the Northeast part of the United States and the United Kingdom. So like it was just these like temperate climates And of course, obviously, they're like lacking in ethnic diversity and aesthetic diversity. And and as I just mentioned, like this geographical diversity. So I really wanted to really look at like the history of the novel in English. So I searched for other lists that did include that complexity and diversity. And there were other, you know, for instance, I didn't have um, enough like prairie language at first. And I happened to find that the University of of Nebraska at Lincoln has this amazing online archive of like the canon of prairie literature, which of course is not included in like Harold Bloom's list, but it really opened up almost all the prairie texts were from that list. And it was an amazing process of also kind of like, I really became a fiction writer while writing this also, you know, I know about writers I'd never even knew about. I also think when I was talking before about skimming and I actually got into an argument with my partner about this while I was writing that, and like, I, I'm pro reading, like, obviously, like, but for this project, 
I needed to do that. But for instance, I don't think I would have read Moby Dick if I hadn't skimmed it. I skimmed it and I was like, this is amazing. <laughs> and then I read it, <laughs> you know. I really wanted to draw on like other sources for where the source text would come from, but it was a bit intuitive. And is there something like that you felt, you know, it, it seems like it starts off kind of as a constraint and experiment and moving through putting this together. I mean, is there something that you came away from making the book feeling like that there was a real purpose of doing it? There was a message, you know, did you feel like that emerged over time working on it? Well, I think in some ways, I mean, definitely, you know, the book at once is kind of like the worst novel idea somebody could think of. It's all the stuff that people probably skim over. There are multiple craft lists that say like, don't start a story with nature descriptions or Mark Twain's The American Claimant. This novel begins with like, there's no nature in this book because nobody wants to read it. You know, if you want nature, it's at the end. And he throws some found nature descriptions at the end. But um, I was like raised as an environmentalist and, and I'm deeply invested in that movement and efforts to combat and manage climate change. Do I think this book will solve that? I feel, you know, skeptical of like a book's ability to solve something, but I think that based on some early readers experiences and some of them, like it made them cry, two of them. And I wonder if that crying is kind of that the book brings out some climate anxiety or it's like a place to grieve because it's just this onslaught, this like immersion in, in nature. And I don't think the book should be like that. That should be the end of it because I don't think it's enough to just grieve. But one reader said that it made her like rethink her relationship to the world around her. And these are all, I hope the readers get this. And I'm just curious to hear what people think. You know, this is my first book like this and I'm excited to hear what other people will find. Yeah. It seems like, you know, we so often think of, will in terms of people and nature, the world is more of something that receives. And I recently heard the word actant, which is like the idea that the natural world has its own power and its own pathos and that we are not just, it's not a, you know, kind of like a supplicant for human beings. It has its own will almost, you know, I mean, things happen out of accord of these like much larger forces. And I think this book certainly portrays that. I mean, that those forces can be just, that those forces are the main story. It's very elemental. People are an afterthought. But that also seems to kind of run ragged over this idea of the novel itself as a form, which is really about like human drama. Right. At some point during reading this, I started to read the sci-fi trilogy, The Three-Body Problem by Sitsin Liu. And while I really loved it at the time, and now I feel a little, a lot skeptical of his politics, I, one of his short stories I thought was like very pro-authoritarian. And I'm interested to read this again to see like what else I missed. But one of the things that those books do is that they help me to reorient my perception of like outer space. Like I feel like I can now imagine distance and deep time in ways I never could which is an amazing thing that a book can, can give you. And, and that author sits in Liu has this essay about like how 
science fiction has the ability to make literature a less narcissistic project. And he thinks about it like even just global centrism that like our planet being like kind of the center of the universe. And so, yeah, maybe my book is a little sci-fi. I mean, I don't think it is on the surface necessarily, but maybe, I don't know. But I think that there's something there. Even my own book makes me wonder what are, what if novels are about people, that's like what the form is. This is one example of like an possible alternative that is still, of course, complicated and connected to that tradition. But yeah, I'm, I love the experience of a book, like reshaping my perception. And I don't know if this book could do that, but I, I know that that's something that I, that books can do that I, I value. You seem to me someone who would be very excited about the AI revolution that's underway. Is that true? I mean, I feel like I've gone back and forth. I did write two novels a year ago before ChatGPT came out. There was there was this GPT-3 playground thing that people had limited access to. And I used it a bit, mainly because these books were drawing on like, basically I pulled the United States for their literary tastes. Like I created this this public opinion poll with this survey design expert at Johns Hopkins. And um, yeah, just ask people like, what's your favorite genre? What's your favorite book length? Characteristics of characters, settings, experimental or traditional. And I got this data and I, the plan was to write the most wanted novel with all the things people want and the most unwanted with all the things people don't want. And I should just say it's drawing, this is drawing on a art project by these artists, Komar and Melamid. But basically, I had this data. I also found this other data from this book, The Bestseller Code, about they used an algorithm to figure out what is like the DNA of a bestseller. But then also at the same time, this GPT-3 playground thing came out before chat GPT. And I actually found it to be like an amazing tool because it had read for a book that was trying to work with the taste of an entire country. And for me being a single author, that this tool actually felt like kind of in tune with this multivocality or multiple perspective I was using. Because that the GBT3 had read like the entire internet, all the great works of literature. So I did that. And I, I really love those books. I think they're, they're great. Not all of it was written using that. You know, they were really good at writing. There's like a horror collection in the middle of The Most Unwanted. They were really good at writing horror, helping me write horror. I don't know, these things come out now and these companies are like gross and the, their carbon footprint's awful and, and they need to be regulated. And so I don't know, it's complicated. <laughs> I'm interested to see how this goes. And I also am interested, there are like non-corporate AI, like large language models you can work with. And I think that, I hope that that becomes something that is used more than just like working with these, like basically the Coca-Cola of AI or whatever. <laughs> mm, I see, I see. Yeah. So there no nature book written by AI coming up. I actually tried that. I was curious <laughs> because the other day I, on Twitter, I, a lot of people were like worried about this change. And my thought was, you know, why don't, why don't we take up the challenge and write something that an AI can't write? And which is maybe a challenge more to genre writing. At the same time, like this GPT-3 playground I talked about, I think it was better than ChatGPT. Like ChatGPT, I found it to be very clunky. But I asked it, I said, could you please write me 
a novel or a short story made entirely out of found nature descriptions. And it, it wrote a scene of a setting sun. And I said, okay, where was that from? And it said, oh, it's from like William Faulkner, or Jane Austen. And then I looked <laughs> and then I copied and pasted it into Google. And no way was it actually, it didn't do it. It couldn't do it. So. Phew. Okay, well, <laughs> so this, this nature book isn't obsolete. This is, <laughs> you're still relevant, Tom. But also if you play with it, any of this stuff, all this stuff about the fear, I mean, the thing is all of it requires a human hand. Only a good artist is going to make good work with these tools. You know, if you just ask it to write you a short story, one, it's going to be obvious that it was written by an AI if you don't edit it. And two, it's probably not going to be good unless you edit it. And when I use it in this, these novels I was talking about, I might only use like a one paragraph from it and then kind of guide it in a different direction. Like it would, I never found it to be good to write in writing multiple paragraphs. So it needs people. I think that there is a, that the fear is a little, I get it, but I, I think that, I think that we're okay for a bit, <laughs> at least hope. And hopefully throughout, but, but like I said, maybe it changes how we approach writing like in certain ways. I don't know. Okay. Well, thank you, Tom, so much for speaking with me today. And I'm glad that you and I still have jobs for the time being. <laughs> yes, me too. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you for your book. That was Tom Kamita. Their debut novel, The Nature Book, is out now. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Tom Kamita author of The Nature Book. We now turn to our conversation with Susan Becker, author of Inside the Spiral, The Passions of Robert Smithson. We're thrilled to have Suzanne Becker with us on the line today. Suzanne is an art scholar, journalist, and critic based in New York City and professor emerita of the history of art at Bergen Community College. She's also the author of Earthworks, Art and Landscape of the 60s, a book that no doubt influenced the title she joins us to talk about today, which is Inside the Spiral, The Passions of Robert Smithson. Betker's latest book is also a first, as the only biography of American artist Robert Smithson, most known for his breathtaking land art, The Spiral Jetty, a counterclockwise spiral of basalt rocks and mud extending out from the shores of Utah's Great Salt Lake. Exploring the autodidact's interest in religion, psychology, sexuality, temporality, and our shifting relationship to the environment, Inside the Spiral offers an account of Smithson as a multi-hyphenate thinker and artist whose work has had an enduring impact on the contemporary art world and on existential questions of place, space, and relation we still wrestle with today. Welcome to the show, Susan. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. So, Suzanne, I was so interested of your research here on Smithson as a painter. I'm curious if you can walk us through a little bit how he went from being a figurative painter to a sculptor to then working more in earthworks and land art, which, you know, that's what he's most known for. His figurative work, which he exhibited unknown by anyone until now in eight exhibitions, From 1956, the summer after he graduated from Clifton High in New Jersey, to 1962, was very personal in subject matter. It was figurative. It's been called religious. It isn't really 
It's not reverential. The first part of it was Christological, but it was only about Christ's death, the death throes and the Via Dolorosa. It was about undergrounds. It was about his ambiguous sexuality. It was expressionistic. He could tell, as all the adventurous younger artists could tell, by the mid, early mid-60s, that painting had basically exhausted itself in terms of style and attraction. It had gotten down to nil of black squares, of Ad Reinhardt, it had gotten up to absolute conglomerations of splatters and swirls with Pollock. And so one thing I discuss actually in my Earthworks book is the shift from painting as the dominant medium in the 60s to sculpture. So when Smithson moved into gallery sculpture in, say, 1965, he was following the river of contemporary art and hoping to float in it and uh, be a captain of it, on it. So this was a stylistic decision. He strategically reformatted his artistic personality from that of an expressionistic painter to a cerebral sculptor and essayist. And the essays in Art Forum definitely propelled his career. And Ben, what kind of spaces was he most drawn to? We think of the spiral jetty, you know, as being isolated and, but it, it's also, you know, near a oil field, is that right? Or a, an oil derrick? It's near a site of extraction, disused, abandoned oil pumps. But now that jumps another five years forward to going through his gallery sculpture period from, say, 65 to 69 and into his large-scale earthworks beginning, say, 1969 with his pours down the Roman hillside of glue and then the spiral jetty. But it wasn't so much the expansive terrain that brought him to the Great Salt Lake, but it was the red water. The red water, it was saline. I mean, it's saline. He had previously gone to Mono Lake in California where it's saline, but unlike what inspired him, Red Lakes in Bolivia, he writes in his essay about learning of Red Lakes in Bolivia, that the algae and the brine shrimp mix with the saline and create an absolutely vivid red water. And it is the red water that brought him to the Great Salt Lake. And that red water, he fantasized as blood. And that relates to the bloody crucifixions he painted in the early 60s. He had a, he was very, very attached to imagery of 
blood, of degradation, of decay throughout his work. All right, so the spiral jetty, and as Eric noted, the jetty from the shore goes counterclockwise. That means chronologically backward. Another reference to the work of the early 60s. Along these lines, I mean, and and you kind of got into it a little bit with the glue pores, is it seems like he embraces this entropic, right? So what he called entropic landscapes. And I'm interested in that as a movement away from, say, like, I'm also fascinated that he loved Catholic art, which is, while incredibly exuberant, it's also very controlled. You know, it's all about, like, very fine lines and techniques and precise hues and colors. And he moves into entropy. And I'm curious about that movement, if that's a movement away from control to something more free-flowing or observational, or how he kind of managed that as he was going into the more landscape movement part of his career. Well, entropy is one of his myriad metaphors of dissolution, because entropy is the loss of order, so that listeners can imagine a pendulum swinging on a grandfather clock. And entropy, unless the clock is regularly wound, if it's not wound, the pendulum will eventually rest straight vertical. All right, so it's kind of a loss of complexity, a loss of order. And that relates to Smithson's myriad references, metaphors to voids, absences, tombs, vacancy, decay, ruins, despair, He had a great emotional affiliation with mortality. And so entropy is, is, say, the intellectual version of his crucified Christ five years earlier. Yeah, it's interesting because you kind of set up this dynamic for him earlier in his art-making life that he was turned off by kind of this more intellectualizing and impersonal, you know, approach to art. And that as a devout Catholic, as someone who wanted things not to be, he makes fun of Jasper Johns and that he can't make soulless work like Jasper Johns. That, on the one hand, being kind of a motivating force, and then on the other, him moving towards, you know, making work that, would seem to be very impersonal, but maybe not because it's also, you could say it's, you know, trying to get closer to nature, get closer to a spirituality, but then also he's making it in these shadows of industry in the non-sites. And I'm actually curious, like, how did he even come to make earthworks? Was his first venture into that this airport commission or? Yes, yes, the airport. But before we say that, let me say, Kate, You're absolutely right in your insight that the post-painting work was impersonal. But this aligns it with minimalism. The guys and some women, a few few women, Rosemary Castoro, Judy Chicago at the time, who was not known by that yet. And his wife, we should say Nancy Holt. Yes, but she did not become an artist until late in the 60s or even in the 70s. She was not making art 
during the minimalist period, or at least she was not making sculpture. She might have been doing some writing or some photography. We have to embed Smithson in art history. And along with the turn from painting to sculpture was a turn from kind of an explosive expressiveness to a repressed professionalism. So Donald Judd will write that the new work is neither painting nor sculpture. It's something else, but it's absolutely about itself and about the experience of it in space relative to one's own body. But they did not conceive of it. They rejected the idea of any myth of the artist, any interior life of the artist or interior life of the work of art. It was all about surface, planes, spatial relations. So Smithson was, you know, a prime participant in that. And he appeared to distance himself from any personal investigation in that sculpture. However, in the last works, in the earthworks, say 1970, and then the one in Emmon, 71, and then his final work, Amarillo, 73, he reinvested those with, we have to acknowledge, mystical symbols. I mean, the spiral, how more mystical can you be than a spiral? Because it is about going within. It is about going, he wrote about it, going to his unicellular beginning. When someone wants to go back, I mean, something we all might like to do at some points in our life, go back to our unicellular beginning and walk out again and reborn, okay? This is a very uh, metaphysical sort of goal. So at the end, he had enough confidence in himself and autonomy and separated himself from the minimalist guys that he invested, you know, the work in the Netherlands, a broken circle, is absolutely a yin-yang symbol. The Amarillo ramp is absolutely an Ouroboros, a snake or dragon biting its own tail. It's alchemy. It's the return of Carl Jung, who he owned more nonfiction books by than any other author. <laughs> you know, so there's so many layers to Smithson, but one layer that we have to recognize is that he was self-created. He made himself a persona. And then there's also his covert self making Euroboros. It's interesting, those mythological figures that you cite. And for me, it's also tied back to the the imagery of the crucifixion that he enjoyed in his early paintings or found so resonant. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about the temporal. So that's a thing that feels so key to the kind of account that you give of his life, but also what others have said about the earthworks and that they're on the one hand, I wonder if they're, especially the Ouroboros, right? So there's destruction, right? That's the death and the blood that you've been kind of tracking all the way through. But that seems like it's the other side of a fascination with the possibility of resurrection or renewal. And I wonder if he looked at the temporal both, I'm thinking of that quote that he has about Central Park, 
where he says that it's like, imagine that you're standing here eons ago and it's a glacier ripping the land beneath it. Is that a kind of thing that he was interested in human time versus deep ecological time? Or was it more this like spiraling back the ability to rewind to a point of origin that could be a new beginning? Well, gee, that's a very provocative question. I would say now, of course, I'm I'm responding from a kind of saturated biographical perspective. I would say he's emphasizing the presence of the past in the present. I mean, the presence of the past in the present. So that, I mean, and underlying, I mean, he's almost saying about himself, if he says that there is these fractured archaic or beyond archaic landscapes underneath Central Park. That's like about himself. There's a fractured history. There's much more depths. There's much more impending, impinging history on his identity than has been recognized. I think he had a longitudinal view of things. And of course, he read science fiction also, and the times, John Tain's time stream, he was very affiliated with, he quoted a few times, and the time stream is about stepping into and being enveloped by, but then coming back to the time stream, but experiencing the past and then coming back and, and being part of this ongoing presence. We can see that in the land art, being part of the land, which people may want to romanticize. I don't think Smithson was an ecologist. I don't think he was spiritual about the land. He was against idealism and romanticism of nature. He had felt more affiliation with decay than fertility, you might say. But still, that's considered... He considered himself part of the calamity aspect, the decay aspect. You know, his, one of his most famous, I mean, one of the statement I quote is the fundamental property of steel is rust. That's missing. <laughs> yeah, I love that quote. And also the way he talked about suburbs as ruins before they're even built, as someone who grew up in Jersey, probably as it was suburbanizing have a you know withering look at at a lot of dimensions of american progress yes but th- there's a direct life source to his, his knowledge about something being ruins even before they're built because he considered himself to have been in some respects ruined before he was born because of the conditions under which he was conceived, okay? I will just say that he was conceived on the one-year anniversary of a significant event to his parents, okay? And we'll let everyone figure out and read what that was. But that resonates throughout his work. I wanted to ask also, do you think that he imagined that his works would be preserved? Did he want them to be? I know he died so young, he might not have 
had much time to think it through, but if his general principle that he's working on is, if one of them is entropy, do you think that he would want the spiral jetty to be preserved at all costs? What do you think he would think of it at now as this kind of like art pilgrimage or destination? This prompts the response that consistency is for small minds. <laughs> I mean, while advocating entropy and feeling emotionally affiliated with kind of dissolution, I don't think as an artist he really wanted, I mean, as a creator, that he really wanted his creations to disappear. He didn't really, I mean, just like all of us feel death, an exception will be made in my case. <laughs> so so uh, he'd probably be dismayed that the lake has receded out beyond, although in recent days, there's been reports about how the heavy snowfall is replenishing the water in the lake in a great sign of ecological optimism. But uh, I mean, intellectually, he'd say entropy was, is part of the way of the world, but I don't think he'd really want his own work to become invisible. As we wrap up, you know, I wanted to ask a little bit. It's so fascinating because whenever I was mentioning over the last week of reading your book, kind of mentioning Smithston to friends, everybody immediately knew him as the spiral jetty guy. And these are not people that are, you know, I mean, they're genuinely interested in art, but they're not like specifically, you know, art historians. So I'm curious just what you see as his enduring legacy in contemporary art and why perhaps the spiral jetty seems to have captured so much the popular imagination in a way that most artists don't get the opportunity to. Well, Eric, I've experienced the same thing. Oh, Smithson? He was the guy who did the spiral jetty? <laughs> yes. Well, there's two sorts of responses. I mean, two sorts of things about that. I think one of his most quoted essays is cultural confinement. Okay, artists love this essay, Cultural Confinement, which is absolutely against. He submitted this brief essay to Documenta in 1972 in lieu of any work of art. And then it was subsequently published in Art Forum. And it's for artistic autonomy. Don't let these curators determine how your work should be shown or these artists, yeah, these art historians, have they, they okay. So it's about cultural, and, and artists really grew with that, and it's, it's about the increasing presence and deference to artists' views of how their work should be represented and shown. That's the intellectual side. The emotional side is, you're absolutely right, the, I think the Spiral Jetty is the most popular, I don't know if we would say contemporary because uh, so many years ago, 50 years ago, but a very popular pilgrimage site. Now, I think that, on the other hand, it's because of its emotional impact, not its intellectual. I mean, they think, whoa, you know, this is such a big work of art. You know, it's grandiose. I mean, it's grand, not just grandiose, it's grand. When it's there with the pink water, it's stunningly beautiful. In my book or on the front page of my website is a absolutely breathtaking picture, a photograph by a pilot who I found 
in Utah who took this picture of it being radiant, the fuchsia and turquoise color. Okay, but I think they walk it the way pilgrims did in the spiral and chart. They walk it feeling like it's kind of a path of life and they're kind of walking it in meditation. They're going in circles, they're going back to the center. And then when you walk out again, it's somehow you've done some kind of prayer. You've reached some kind of center and you you have touched something. You have touched, you have brought your own center to a point of contemplation. And then you're going to walk out as Smithson did to a broader, when he walked out from it, he then embarked on more public art. His next work was a work in a countrywide in the Netherlands exhibition. I mean, it was in a quarry, but nevertheless, it was part of a expansive publicly funded exhibition. Whereas before the spiral jetty was privately funded by his patron, his professional mother and dealer, Virginia Dwan. So he was in fact moving out to a point of expansion from walking out to the spiral jetty. So he was enacting his own performance site, you might say. And I think people groove on the mystical, metaphorical, psychological, they even could perceive it as spiritual path of going in and then coming out. I love that. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with Suzanne Betker, author most recently of Inside the Spiral, The Passions of Robert Smithson. Thanks so much for joining us, Suzanne. Yes, and look on my website, suzannebetker.net, for my speaking engagements. I'd love to talk to anyone who shares my enthusiasm for Smithson. That sounds great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. We've been speaking with Suzanne Becker, author of Inside the Spiral, The Passions of Robert Smithson. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers at the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Matea Baim. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley Vlott.